on concerns from patients and families regarding hospice care. So probably most of you have seen this um, palliative care continuum before. So palliative care is, um, the, the goal of palliative care is for folks at any stage um, of a serious illness uh, to achieve the best quality of life for those patients and for the people who care for them and about them. The goal is to assess and offer treatments consistent with their values. And this care, which can be given um, even while curative treatment is underway, includes expert symptom management, support for caregivers, and access to therapies that can improve their comfort and peace of mind. So the way I describe palliative care is it's, it's like an umbrella, and it's an umbrella term. And then hospice is sort of the last sideways triangle in that umbrella. And so hospice is a philosophy of compassionate and comprehensive care for the dying person. And again, for the people who care for them and about them. Hospice addresses the medical, psychosocial, spiritual, and practical needs of the individual and the related needs of the family uh, and their caregivers. And eventually um, uh, helps caregivers with uh, caregivers and family with bereavement. Hospice is a good choice when curative treatment is no longer effective or no longer wanted, and when life expectancy is measured in months to weeks. This is a fascinating slide. So here we go. You go one at a time here. So. Um, this is a little bit more detailed about the difference between palliative care and hospice. So first, the philosophy. So palliative care, uh, there's philosophies very similar. So it's the whole person for palliative care and hospice, of course, um, and for their family of choice. So their family of choice might be their relatives, their caregivers or their friends. Um, and it's in both scenarios, we focus on quality of life and um, the care is provided by a team. For prognosis, for palliative care, it's any stage of illness. And for hospice, it's the estimated less than six months if the disease runs its natural course. The value focus for palliative care is longevity and function and comfort, and those should all be taken into consideration. For hospice, we're really focusing on comfort. And lastly, um, in most areas, particularly down here in the South, Palliative care is really only available, uh, specialty palliative care is really only available um, in the hospital and hospice, it's available really anywhere. But if they are a hospitalized patient, if they were hospitalized, you would really just focus on their symptom management. All right. So hospice services, this is a sort of a general broad overview. So there's an interprofessional team. There's 24-7 availability by phone. Um, there's location of choice, medication coverage, uh, equipment coverage, and grief and bereavement counseling uh, after death. A little more about hospice, so why and when. So again, if it's a life expectancy of six months or less, if the illness runs its normal course, uh, it's when the patient is prioritizing comfort above illness. Yeah. Can we take a brief? Oh, yeah. Not yes. Somebody said they're not picking up audio. I just want to make sure. Should be. 
Can you hear us out there? Maybe I'm not talking if I'm looking over there. They're saying yes. Okay. 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 So these are, there's a little more detail about hospice. So the wine one we talked about. Um, so place, it can really be any place, uh, because hospice is really a service. It's not a place or a location. So it can be home, adult foster care home, assisted living or memory care, long-term care in the hospital. And with Providence, we, um, even will care for those who are houseless. Um, or, you know, living in a hotel, motel type situation. How? So who pays for it? So it is a Medicare benefit. Medicaid also considers it a benefit. Um, the VA is um, outstanding at, at providing the care or paying for the care. Um, and private insurance, so that's usually for the younger folks, and that can be a little bit trickier, but that's where hopefully our charity care comes into um, into place. And then who is it? So who's the team? So the absolute members are the team would be the patient and the family, uh, the nurse, um, social worker, the doctor or doctors, um, spiritual care and bereavement counseling. And then with Providence Hospice, we have the home health aides. Um, I have a pharmacist that I can access um as a resource uh, that she covers the region, which is super helpful for me. And we have volunteers and then integrative therapy. So down here we have harp and massage therapy. And then we can also, uh, at times we use PT, uh, so physical therapy, occupational therapy, and dietitians if someone's on a, a feeding tube. Um, there can be NPs and PAs involved. Um, here in the South, I don't, we don't have that, but part of our team up North is a wonderful group of NPs who help cover, uh, symptom management for us. And then what? So again, it's the interprofessional team. It's 24-7 availability by phone. Um, the medical equipment and supplies, prescription medications that are related to the hospice diagnosis, bereavement services. Sometimes we do short-term inpatient care for symptom management. Um, short-term respite care, and that's when the patient goes to a facility of some sort and the family gets respite for caring for them. And then continuous home care, which it doesn't happen very frequently, but um, actually did have a case recently of a young man coming off of a debutamine drip. And so the nurse and I were in the home for, we were probably there for six to seven hours uh, helping with, uh, helping him pass while he was coming off that medication. So again, just to, you know, be clear, I think everybody knows this, that hospice is a service. It's not a location. Um, availability by phone 24-7. And then the, uh, the nurse um, is available also 24-7. Um, it might take a bit for the nurse to get there, particularly if she, she or he has been out in Josephine County and then has to get to Jackson County, but they will get there. Um, it's uh, our team members visit several times a week and typically stay one to two hours. Uh, and the volunteers and the health aides might stay longer than that. One key thing to remember and to share with your um, patients and their families is that the family and the facility are responsible for the caregiving. That's not part of the Medicare benefit. Um, so that's a, that's a key point. I wish it was, but it, but it's not. Okay, so now we know what, you know, hospice is and what it entails. 
So this is really for the primary care physician or provider. So when does one start thinking about um, a hospice referral? So many hospice referrals are made in the last days or weeks of life. And it would really be great if patients and caregivers could be able to take advantage or were able to take advantage of their full hospice benefit, which would last, you know, six months of their life, sometimes even longer. Um, I think that one of the key elements um, is the primary care provider or physician's assessment. So um, if you feel like they have a short prognosis, and I think that's super useful, your assessment uh, as useful as any specific criteria that we have to trigger an evaluation for a possible admission. CMS, which is a center for Medicare uh, and Medicaid services, requires only a likely prognosis of six months or less, so we don't have to be perfect in our assessments. And then the hospice MD, so in this case, me, I would review the records and our team would assess um, your patients to certify a prognosis of six months or less. And when in doubt, just ask. So I think we all know um, sort of the basic categories for hospice eligibility. The ones that we're most familiar with are, um, you know, cancer, uh, lung disease, uh, neurologic, uh, cardiac disease, liver and renal. So those are kind of the basic ones. Uh, but there are lots of other, you know, other disease entities or or um, um, functional uh decline that we can use that might trigger consideration of a hospice referral, even without one of those key diagnoses. So when your patients start to have clear, persistent signs of functional uh, or clinical decline, and there doesn't seem to be any clear path um, for to reverse the course, you know, so for example, multiple hospitalizations, multiple falls, decreased ability to manage their activities of daily living, recurrent serious infections, weight loss, uh, increasing or persistent weakness and declining function, skin breakdown, frequent emergency department or clinic visits, um, the inability to participate in physical therapy or rehabilitation. So if they were just recently discharged from the hospital and they're in some kind of skilled nursing facility, but they can't participate, um, and then worsening confusion. And again, we don't expect um, primary care physicians or providers to get to have to be perfect, um, nor have specific guidelines at your fingertips. Uh, but as you're interacting with your patients and your families and reviewing their charts after an ED visit or fielding phone calls uh, from concerned family members, we hope you take notice um, when a patient is just not getting better. So, you know, I think an age-old testament is, is that if you wouldn't be surprised um, if your patient passed within the next six months, plus the patient's values, they prioritize comfort, would mean, you know, let's get a hospice referral going. Okay, so this is um, this is more the nitty-gritty, and I don't expect anyone to have any of this, um, you know, um, memorized in any sort of way. Um, but just this is just next section is to really explain how we determine eligibility. So there's um, what's called local coverage determination guidelines, which is what we use to determine whether or not a patient is eligible. And the link right under that, which you should be able to access, would give you specific disease um, 
uh, guidelines for every different disease entity. Um, but again, I don't expect you to, I mean, if you want to look at them, you can, but you certainly don't need to. Um, the LCDs are a guideline for hospice agencies for admissions and recertifications. They're used by uh, MACs, which are Medicare administrative contractors um, who audit home health and hospice claims for um, in defined geographic and um, and jurisdictions to determine if we're admitting the right type of patient. Um, the LCDs provide consistency so that you have, um, you know, you don't talk to one hospice agency and they say, yes, the patient's appropriate. And you go to another hospice agency and they say, no, the patient isn't appropriate. Um, so that the goal is that they provide consistency. And then they're just an educational resource for liaisons and referral sources. So the structure of the LCD, so there's three parts. So the first one, I would say, is the part that the, the primary care physician or provider would be the most um, uh, in tune with. And so that's sort of the, the it's the decline in clinical status guidelines. And then there's part two and three, and part two and three need to really go together. So part two is a gateway to then use part three. Um, and so part two is if, if patients have a minimal functional limitation, so it just needs to be minimal, that would open the door to a diagnosis specific guideline. So when you use part two, you can then use part three. And we'll all go through those. The part one is, um, the decline, the decline guideline. So, and this can be used solely. Part one uh, is enough to stand on its own. So essentially, it's a, a decline in clinical um, uh, status or symptoms, change in symptoms, change in signs, and change in change in laboratory results. So those are listed in order of their likelihood to predict poor survival. So the most predictive first, and the least predictive last. And we'll go through them one by one. Okay, so clinical status, so recurrent or intractable infections such as pneumonia, sepsis, UTIs, uh, progressive inanition, which is weight loss, a decrease in their MAC. A MAC is a midarm circumference, which a lot of the home health nurses will measure, you know, once a month or so. And if that keeps going down, that can show weight loss when a patient can't get on a scale um, or decreased serum albumin or cholesterol. Dysphagia, leading to recurrent aspiration or just essentially uh, inadequate oral intake with documented poor consumption. Um, continuing with the clinical status would be um, a decline in the uh, in one of the different types of scores. We in hospice use the palliative performance score, which I'm going to show you in a minute. And we usually want patients to have a PPS of 70% or less, uh, and that's due to the progression of their disease. And then again, what I talked about before, an increase in ED visits, hospitalizations, or visits, or phone calls to your physician. So this is the PPS. So this is one of two... Um, one of two scales that we use uh, with every hospice admission. So the scores are determined by reading horizontally from the left and then moving downward. The columns to the left are stronger determinants and generally take precedence over the others. Um, so you can see at the top there, the PPS level of 100% is just, you know, uh, somebody who is not ill. 
And at the very bottom, the PPS of 0% means the patient is deceased. The two main indicators are, uh, like I said, is ambulation and then activity and evidence of disease. So to get to a, a PPS of 70% or less, if your ambulation is reduced right there, you've, you've met that criteria. Um, if it's not reduced, but then you're unable to do a normal job or work and have significant disease. So if you come, you know, down into the, uh, move down from the left to the right, that also would be a 70%. And then there's the other, um, categories, which are self-care intake and conscious level. Most of our patients come to our service when their PPS is around 30%, um, or 40%. So they're mainly in bed, unable to do any activity. They really need help with their uh, self-care. Um, sometimes they're eating normally, but mostly they aren't. And then they're, um, th they can be fully conscious or they can be a little bit drowsy or confused. But this is really our go-to. Um, okay. So uh, next is the decline guideline. Uh, again, so... The next scale that we use, we're still on uh, clinical status. So progressive decline in functional assessment. So this is a FAST score, and this is the scale that we use for dementia. And then uh, progression to dependence on assistance with ADLs, uh, and then potentially, you know, ongoing pressure sores. Let me show you the FAST scale. So this is our other main scale that we use with any patient who has any type of cognitive decline. Um, it was created for specifically for dementia patients, for Alzheimer's, but um, but it does have some uh, value in all types of dementia, particularly uh, and even in unspecified dementia. The way it works is you can't skip levels. Um, the score is the highest consecutive level of disability. And obviously, with dementia, the score is usually based on information obtained from a knowledgeable informant. So their caregivers, their family members. So uh, a fast scale of one is essentially, you know, there isn't really an issue. And a 7F is really, which is the very bottom there, that's the, um, that's when patients are really close to end of life. So for dementia patients, you know, typically we want them to be close to a, to a seven. Um, and to be at a seven, you're usually incontinent of urine and fecal. Um, doesn't have to be all the time, but occasionally. Um, you're not able to handle, you know, the mechanics of toileting. They need help with bathing, um, have difficulty putting their clothes on, that type of thing. And then uh, when you get to the seven level, that's when um, your verbal skills are declining. Uh, and that's 7A. 7B is really you're just not speaking much at all uh, or just have complete word salad. Uh, and then 7C is when you're non-ambulatory. And then you can read D, E, and F you know, unable to sit up, unable to smile, and then unable to hold the head up. So if a patient is non-ambulatory, let's say for some other reason, uh, but they're still continent of urine uh, and feces, then they, then you have to jump back up to the sixes. You can't call them a seven. So it has to be, um, it has to be consecutive. Okay, so we went through clinical status. So now these are uh, clinical symptoms that one should look for. So, um, you know, dyspnea with an increased respiratory rate, a potentially an intractable cough or intractable diarrhea, nausea or vomiting that's poorly responsive to treatments, 
um, or pain that's requiring increased dose of analgesics. Um, and, you know, especially if patients that don't really have an interest or they've they've looked into you've looked into why these things are happening, but can't come up with a cause. Uh, that's really something to think about. And then we have the clinical signs. Um, so change, you know, lowering in blood pressure, uh, if they have ascites, edema, weakness, change in their consciousness level, um, or they've got, you know, recurrent effusions. And then the next piece of the LCD part one is labs, you know, when available. So we don't really need lab results to bring patients onto hospice. Um, the time that we need that the most is for end-stage renal disease if they're not on dialysis. Um, if they're on dialysis, then we, you know, obviously they're, they'd be getting labs anyway, but um, that's not just not as important because they'd be stopping dialysis. So here's just some basic labs here. You know, if their tumor markers are going up, their LFTs are getting higher, their sodium's going up or down. Um, or their O2 sat is going down. But again, there's no reason to get labs just to qualify them for hospice. All right, so just in sum, for the LCD part one, they can be used again instead of part two and part three, and they include the clinical status, symptoms, signs, and lab values. So it's really what you're seeing at the bedside. Okay. Now is um, part two and three, which are the more common um, ways that we uh, find eligibility. So, again, the PPS has to be less than or equal to 70 percent. So this is the gateway to being able to use the, um, uh, the disease-specific guidelines. And then they need to be dependent in greater than uh, or equal to two ADLs. And the ADLs are ambulatory. Relation, continence, dressing, feeding, and bathing. Both must be met and both would be used in conjunction with part three. Okay, so again, just a quick review. We're all pretty used to these diagnoses, cancer, heart, liver, lung, renal, uh, neurologic, and dementia, um, ALS, of course. Um, I just wanted to make a note about uh, cancer diagnoses. So often we'll bring patients onto our service who actually don't have a diagnosis of cancer, but have a large mass somewhere in their body um, or have a CT scan that's consistent with metastatic disease. Um, if the patients don't want to see an oncologist or have further evaluation, that's okay. Um, we don't have to have a biopsy result. So there's no reason to put your patient through a biopsy if they don't want to. But again, the, the key thing is that they have to have a PPS of 70% or less. So some patients with metastatic disease can be walking around and have no idea. Of course, we, we see that. Um, so if they're not dependent for at least, at least two ADLs and their PPS is higher than 70, then they wouldn't quite qualify for hospice. But as their condition declines, then they, they qualified. But this is just sort of an add-on. So, um, you know, there are lots of comorbidities out there that will um, that aren't necessarily the primary hospice diagnosis, but help us um, with more um, data to help bring them on to our service. So we would call these related. Um, you know, they might have uh, CHS and COPD, but not be oxygen dependent, but they also have some dementia. Um, you know, when you add all those together, you can come up, obviously, uh, um, at times with a prognosis of less than six months. 
And then this, again, is just the link for the disease-specific guidelines. Um, I'm not going to push it now, but it's there for you if you have an interest. Now we know sort of what the LCDs are, um, but what if they just don't fit, right? So, um, you know, their guidelines, uh, they're intended to help us determine when patients are appropriate for the Medicare hospice benefit, but everyone is unique, as we know, um, and there are patients that might not meet a particular guideline. So in those cases, it's just really important for us to be documenting pretty meticulously the different factors that we think um, warrant uh um, hospice eligibility and, um, you know, why we think a patient has a terminal prognosis. So the next piece is that, um, so, you know, different pathways to eligibility. So there's the, you know, the very straightforward when um, the patient meets all the local coverage determinants. Um, the second path would be, you know, they meet most of them, uh, but not all. And they have a documented rapid decline. So rapid decline, like they're just not eating, they really can't walk anymore, or they just want to sit down or be in bed. They're going to the hospital all the time, that type of thing. Um, path for three would be, again, they meet most of the criteria and they have significant comorbidities. So back to that slide that I showed you. Um, and then path four is just, again, your judgment. So your clinical assessment and experience and your evidence uh, based on knowledge, if your judgment is really like, I don't think they're going to be here in six months, then we should take a look. I have a few cases here. So the first case outlines um, the first path where the patient meets all the LCD criteria. So these are um, just up in the right corner there are the uh, disease-specific criteria for cancer. So um, a patient who has a disease with metastases at presentation or um, a patient has progression from an earlier stage of disease to metastatic disease with either continued decline in spite of therapy or they just decided they don't want the, the disease-directed therapy any longer. So this is a 52-year-old man with colorectal cancer that was metastatic at the time of the presentation. He, unfortunately, is not a candidate for tumor-directed therapy. His PPS is 50%, meaning he's really de pretty declined. Uh, he is still ambulatory, but he needs his wife's help with showers and dressing. So that's when you look back at that PPS. And yes, he can ambulate. But um, as you go the stepwise fashion, he continues to lower his score. So the reason he qualifies is because his PPS is less than or equal to 70 percent. And he is dependent for greater than or equal to two ADLs. And he meets the disease specific criteria. So that's this is a very straightforward case. So path two, um, so they're meeting most LCD criteria um, and they're in rapid decline. So this is a 92-year-old with Alzheimer's. Uh, the FAST is actually 6E. And as a reminder, said usually want their FAST to be around 7. But a FAST of 6E means that they're typically incontinent, um, but still verbal, verbal and ambulatory. Um, this patient needs help with their ADLs, other than they can still walk. Uh, they had a recent hospital admission, um, and when they get home, they're sleeping more, they're uh, not wanting to eat, um, and they're losing their verbal skills, and their daughter feels that the patient is withering away. So that would be meeting most of the criteria, but just in a rapid decline. 
And just sort of as a reminder for dementia, the uh, number one there is really um, the fast scale again. Uh, and then number two is typically, you know, in addition to that fast scale, they had a recent infection or hospitalization or they have decubit eye ulcer or they've lost a significant amount of weight or, or just really aren't taking in food. So if they haven't lost weight yet, but they've really stopped eating and drinking, we don't need to wait for the weight loss to occur. We can just bring them on. Okay, so this is the third pathway. So again, meeting most of the LCDs and they have comorbidities. So this is an 88 year old with COPD. So the, the disease specific for um, end stage lung disease is typically having disabled dyspnea at rest. Um, and dyspnea that's not responsive to medication treatments and it's leading to a decreased functional capacity. So we usually call this a bed to chair existence. Um, and then just or uh, also and in addition, so progression of the end stage pulmonary disease. So they've had uh, additional emergency um, department visits or hospitalizations. Or if you want to document their FEV, that there's been a decline in that, you can do that as well. So this is an 88 year old woman. Uh, I think it's a woman with COPD. So she has the uh, the bed to chair existence. She has a dyspnea when walking. Um, but she's not dysmic at rest. So that's why it's saying she's meeting mostly LCDs, but not all. Um, she is on O2. She's cachectic and is losing weight. She's weak. Um, and the comorbidity is that she has fairly moderate dementia. So she can recognize her family and she's verbal, but she's, uh, can't remember things that happened a few moments ago and she can continues to, um, repeat herself. So that's, this person would qualify. And then the next case is, um, so this is, again, when you're using your clinical judgment. So this is a 102-year-old female, and currently in Medford, we have a 110-year-old woman on our hospice service. Um, so a 102-year-old female with hypertensive heart disease and mild dementia. She's just really frail. Um, she's falling. She has de increased dependence on ADL. She's recently been hospitalized, and she's um, and although she doesn't have weight loss, uh still your clinical judgment is that you don't think you wouldn't be surprised at all if she wouldn't be with us in six months. So we can often make a case for that. OK, so that's all the eligibility and the nitty gritty. But again, um, you know, please remember that your intuition is what is most important and we're always willing to go do an evaluation. Um, but now, so how do you bring up the topic? of hospice with your patient. So these are four guidelines here. Um, we want to establish a setting. We want to find out what the patient understands. We want to know what the patient expects it um, as their disease progresses. And then once we have those three sort of things established, we can discuss hospice. So establishing the setting. So I know in primary care um, that we're so time challenged. Um, but what I would say is when you when you have this discussion, you're not um, addressing the multitude of their other medical issues that you're really just focused on this conversation. So you want it to be comfortable and private. Um, ask if other family members should be present, particularly if they're dementia, you would want, uh, you know, a decision maker there. Uh, introduce the subject. So I'd like to talk with you about your overall goals of care. And if they're non-English speaking, as you all know, we have to have, uh, and appropriately so, an interpreter available. 
So first sort of question. So what do they, what does the patient understand? So ask open-ended questions to get their understanding about their current health. Try to get them talking if possible. Um, you know, you can specifically ask what they understand about their health situation. What did your doctors tell you? What did the hospital tell you? What did your specialist tell you about your condition? And if the patient doesn't seem to know or appreciate what their current health, you know, status is, then you, you know, need to start reviewing information with them. And then an informed decision about hospice is only possible if the patient has a clear understanding of his or her illness and their prognosis. So you, you have to go there. Uh, and then, uh, you know, what does the patient expect? So ask them to consider their future. What do they expect in the future? What are their goals for the future um, and for the time they have left? What's important to them? Let them talk and listen. Typically, most will vo voice their thoughts about dying when you give them the opening. Again, if there's a complete disconnect between what you expect and what they expect, then you really have to spend some time clarifying. And maybe this is, you know, time to clarify and then have them come back a different day to move forward on this. Um, and then speak back their goals. So, you know, what you're saying is you don't want to go to the hospital anymore. You don't want to come see me anymore. You're tired of all the pills. You just want to be left alone. Um, so if you speak that back to them, then it's easier to then associate it with hospice care. And again, most patients have thought about dying. Um, they sometimes they just need permission to talk about it, especially sometimes, you know, when family is um, part of the picture. And then it's time to discuss hospice. So you want to use language that the patient will understand and give information in small doses. Um, you know, I think we would all appreciate it if we don't, you know, the patients would appreciate it if we don't say something like there's nothing more we can do. First of all, that's not accurate um, and it can be misinterpreted to um, meaning that we're abandoning them. Um, and then you want to summarize your patient goals again, like we just talked about. So you told me you want to stop going to the hospital or you told me you're tired of all these medications. Um, listen carefully to their response when you when you bring up hospice. Sometimes they'll have a distorted view of hospice based on prior um, family members that have been through hospice or hearing about their neighbor or that type of thing. Ask them what hospice means to them. Um, probe for prior experiences like I just talked to talked about and then um you know respond by describing hospice as um as a program and a medicare benefit it's it's a benefit that they you know deserve um that will help achieve their goals that they have described and then lastly you know we can always send someone out to meet with them and give them information send them to their home which sometimes is more helpful and then uh, explain the coverage. So what is covered, you know, with the Medicare benefits? So they really don't pay anything. The interprofessional team is covered. Medications related to the hospice diagnosis are covered. Hospital beds, over-the-bed tables, um, you know, a wheelchair, oxygen, that's all covered. Bereavement services for their family, respite care for their family, and then um, short-term inpatient if we need it. And then insurance types, like I talked about before, it really is a benefit with all insurance types. And uh, again, for with private insurance, we try to engage charity care if we need to.
So medications. Um, so I think um, sometimes patients think so sometimes patients are really tied to their medications and they don't want to stop them because they do feel like you're sort of, you know, giving up. Um, so we cover all medications that are for pain uh, or symptom management related to the hospice diagnosis. For non-hospice diagnosis-related medications, um, those are typically covered under Medicare Part D or MedAdvantage. Um, I typically encourage um, reducing pill burden and reducing medications in order uh, to reduce medication interactions. Um, you know, we want to focus on comfort rather than life-prolonging medications. But when I use the word comfort, you know, I would say that I use that pretty liberally. So if someone's on uh, on our service for heart failure, I would consider their beta blocker, their nitroglycerin and their diuretic as a comfort medication. I wouldn't stop those. Um, if they're a smoker and they need to wear oxygen, then I think a nicotine patch is appropriate for comfort. Um, on the other hand, I don't typically consider an anticoagulate uh, a comfort medication. Um, or a statin, a comfort medication. Anticoagulants, we do cover at times. So if a patient has um, metastatic cancer and they've been having pulmonary emboli or DVT, then of course we would cover that medication and that I would say would be for comfort. Um, and then lastly, hospice will, hosp different hospice services will have uh, a formulary. You're not expected to know that formulary and we just, um, but, but you might sometimes see us changing the PPI to one that we uh, cover. So just note that that's why we would do that. Um, okay. This is Dr. Shaw. Thank you, Dr. Shaw, for letting me use this slide. Um, so patients often also worry that can they keep their PCP? You know, they're, they're concerned that they won't see you again or hear from you again. Um, so the, and so they absolutely can keep their primary care provider or physician. Um, and they can come see you in clinic or you can go see them in their home if you choose to do that. We just ask that diagnostics be limited because that's really not our focus. Um, and, and the PCP would continue to prescribe medications not related to the terminal diagnosis, such as, um, you know, the most common are usually diabetes and thyroid meds. Uh, okay. I put this in here under that they can keep their PCP, but I know how busy everyone is. I know what your in-baskets look like. Um, I am more than happy to fill out a death certificate. Um, I can sign their uh, the patient or the caregiver FMLA paperwork. Um, I can do the handicap placard. So if that's helpful for you, I'm more than willing to do it. Okay. So now these are sort of the common concerns um, that hospice patients or caregivers might have. So we'll go through them one by one. So concern number one, I want to pursue, pursue MAID, so that's medical aid and dying. My response would be that hospice and MAID are not exclusive, exclusive of one another. They can be done in unison. Um, and so I would never not have someone come on to hospice if they said that they wanted to pursue MAID. They're, we can definitely work that out. Um, second concern is patients, maybe they want to remain a full code and, uh, they can remain a full code. We often will work with them over time and, uh, eventually they typically will, um, not want to be a full code any longer once we sort of explain everything and as their condition de declines and deteriorates, but they don't have to be, um, a DNR to come on to hospice. I don't want to deactivate my defibrillator. 
So they don't, again, they don't have to. We can put a magnet in the home and if the defibrillator goes off, we can put the magnet on their chest and that will stop it. Um, I think as you all know, defibrillators are different than pacemakers. We don't deactivate pacemakers because eventually their heart muscle will just be too weak to really respond to the pacemaker. So the pacemaker doesn't really prolong life. So we just leave the pacemakers alone, but defibrillators, we often uh, work with them to deactivate. Uh, I want to be able to call 911 if I have an emergency. So, um, you know, this is kind of going back to goals of care, but we suggest that we be called first, the hospice team. Um, we can review their goals of care with them and help determine the need for the emergency department. Um, there are times when we will suggest that patients go to the emergency department. You know, recently we had a patient with um, severe epistaxis that couldn't be controlled in the home. So she went to the ED. Um, if someone falls and has a, a fracture and it's just causing, you know, excruciating pain, then, of course, we would suggest that they do that if we can't control it in the home or sometimes for lacerations that we aren't able to treat in the home. And uh, and we do about once a year, a patient will end up in the hospital under our care, um, usually for either pain that's out of control or that we can't get control of in the home or behaviors that are out of control, usually a dementia patient. Um, okay. Somebody who wants to continue to see all their specialists, again, review the goals of care. Um, specialists that are related to the terminal diagnosis, so like oncology, cardiology, pulmonary, I can always call them on behalf of the patient if they have certain questions that arise. Um, but really seeing those specialists is not part of the hospice benefit. And then this happens too. Sometimes um, my doctor's requesting that I come in to be seen. We will um, troubleshoot that. And, you know, is it for oops, there's a typo there. Is it for a med refill, uh, for a lab check or for FMLA? I can usually help with all of those things and I'm happy to do so. And, or contact the, the primary care provider as well. OK, so what if I get better? Um, you know, patients can graduate and they often, you know, it's not unusual uh, with a prolonged prognosis. and you know, that's typically good news. Um, but they can also elect to disenroll even if their their um even if their condition is, you know, deteriorating, um, if they want to have active disease directed treatment. Um, you know, that's their choice and that's okay. And we're happy to take them back onto service when they are ready. And the last one, uh, or one of the last ones is, you know, sometimes we don't hear this that often, but we can hear it so that I don't want to be drugged to death. So just to be really clear, our intention is never to hasten anyone's death by giving medications. Um, the comfort pack that we use, it needs to be in the home for crisis situations. We don't want to have to be uh, calling Providence Pharmacy at 2 a.m. to get medications for them. Um but it doesn't need to be initiated until the symptoms warrant warrant the use. Um, you know, when a patient is starting to transition towards death or be actively dying, then then we do use the comfort pack and that might cause some sedation. But again, our intention is never to hasten death. I wanted to touch just briefly a little bit more on hospice and maid. So um, medical aid and dying again and hospice are not mutually exclusive. Um, and patients on Providence Hospice may participate in MAID. Below that is the link 
that um, what a primary care physician uh, or provider as um, Providence's um, view on how to respond to requests for provider hasten death. So you should familiarize yourself with that if you haven't already. And then I also wanted to talk a little bit about our local hospice house. So it's, you know, it's a place of service with full-time caregiving and food and all kinds of different amenities. Um, all hospice, hospice providers in the Valley have access to it. So Signature Hospice might have some patients there. Asante has patients there. We have patients there. But to my knowledge, only Asante and Providence sponsor beds, and which we do. And it's a really a wonderful facility. And that's all I have. So this is um, credits there. So thank you to all those who helped. And um, just want to know if anybody has any questions or cases, too. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Gramley. Um, we'll open up for questions. And if anyone um, on Teams has questions, they could just type them into the chat. I guess a question I have, uh, we hear if a patient goes to the ER, they'll get kicked off hospice or. Uh, so that's a great question. So if they um, so there are service areas. So if they are a Providence hospice patient and they show up at um, Three Rivers or uh, Asante Rogue, then there is a high likelihood that they would be um, disenrolled from hospice. But when they get back home, we can re-enroll them right away again. So I don't know that I would call it being kicked off. They're just out of the service area. Um, the other piece of that is if we recommend they go, so if we want them to go, like the woman with epistaxis, we call and our nurse usually meets them there and speaks with the ED uh, physician about um, lets them know that they're on hospice and that we'd like to get the bloody nose under control. But really, the goal is to get them back back home. Right. So it looks like uh, Gina Vaccaro has her hand up. Yes. Hi. Thank you. I'm a, an oncologist in Portland, and I just had a, a question about the um, ability to see specialists after they enroll. So oftentimes, um, if, I, if I'm as the specialist, the oncologist, the person who refers them to hospice, my understanding was that they, they could see me if they wanted to. Um, versus, yeah. you know, since yeah. I'm not the primary care doctor, but I'm the specialist, um, because often so, patients want to have that reassurance, yes. um, when we've seen them for so long. Right. So typically, if you're the one that, uh, did the referral, then you're listed as their primary care provider in this scenario. And yes, they can come see you. Okay. Thank um, you. and again, we, we hope that the diagnostics are limited. Of course. Um, yeah, but, uh, but yes. And but yeah, so they have to they essentially have to choose who they want to be their their primary care provider. It could be their cardiologist or the oncologist, but then their their traditional primary care provider would not be someone that they would. They have to choose one. One person. Essentially. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Thank yes. you for that clarification. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Any other questions? Uh, I guess um, on the death certificate question, uh, it seems like the funeral homes typically reach out to the 
primary care office first or do they ever go directly to hospice? I, I sign a lot. Yeah. So I think that they come to me if you and and I think it's always OK for you to decline it and say, I want the hospice doctor to sign it. I, it's no problem for me. I do them all electronically. I have, you know, their cause of deaths right in front of me, because sometimes for you folks, they've been in the hospital and had a complex you know, hospitalization, and then they come directly to hospice and you never see them. So you might not know and you don't need to spend all of your time doing a lengthy chart review. So I'm happy to do them. You can always redirect them. And I sign them electronically. I don't do the paper ones. Okay. Well, if there's no further questions, uh, we'll end the session. And thanks again, Dr. Gramley. And thanks for attending, everyone. Hey, you're welcome.